This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Well, how dare you? Like, this was great. This was a fantastic draft. How could you have torn this apart like this? I was like mad. It was pistols at dawn. <laughs> Welcome to Hello PhD podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we uncover those elusive transferable skills that you learned in graduate school. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 149. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Happy day, Josh. Um, we always talk about the weather at the beginning of the show, and today it was exciting. It did snow in North Carolina. I think it's been pretty crazily snowing all across the country recently, hasn't it? We had our first day of virtual interviews for our program, and so I had the opportunity to talk to uh, lots of PhD program applicants from across the country, and that was the common thread. Almost everyone I talked to had some sort of snow. At their house. Even Las Vegas, I think, had snow this week, didn't they? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, One of my friends uh, posted on social media for where I live here in North Carolina, well, it didn't not snow. (laughs) So that kind of sums up the snow event that we had. I think I had a a half an inch, maybe, at my house. Well, this is an interesting experiment that you can only run this year. Um, It turns out that if you get an inch of snow in North Carolina... You also cancel virtual school from home, which I find really fascinating that snow is that threatening <laughs> that you also can't go onto a Zoom meeting while you're at home. So for the record, if you want to live in a place that totally shuts down anytime it snows, this is the place to be. I think it confirms my hypothesis that uh, snow days in the South are really more about let's just take time to relax than safety on the roads. Yeah, there is nothing on any road within 50 miles of here, it, neither here nor there. Josh, you know we are still celebrating, at least I am still celebrating dry January. I cannot wait for it to end. This has been quite a month. We've had uh, elections and insurrections and inaugurations, (laughs) and each time I wanted to have a beer or something, uh, but going strong, I wanted to pick a beverage that I don't think we've actually talked about, but it's one that I consume in great quantities. Chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is a good guess, but I don't drink very much chocolate milk. Uh, The answer is actually green tea. And this is a habit that I picked up when I was in graduate school. Um, I think it was my PI bought me a teapot. And I had read some things about green tea being good for you. And so I started drinking it. Um, have Have you experienced green tea? I've gone through phases of trying green tea. Uh, I can remember in grad school when you first got into tea, uh, I remember there was an organic grocery store close by where we lived where they had lots of different teas in bulk that you could buy. And I was always very intrigued by all the different permutations and mixtures of types of tea. And and you always had these different kinds uh, at your house. I was, I was intrigued. But I have to admit, Dan, maybe you can convince me otherwise, but I always struggle liking green tea. I always feel like it doesn't taste too much different than hot water to me, but maybe I'm doing it yeah, wrong. Yeah, and, and you like black tea, right? I mean, they're very different, obviously. I'm a big fan of black tea, black coffee. Uh, I always wonder if maybe it, uh, I have to refine my subtle green tea palate. Uh, maybe, maybe that's it. 
you know, it's interesting. I can't, I'm, I'm thinking about it right now, and, and I don't think I drink it because the flavor, you know, you smell coffee, and you instantaneously want to drink coffee, right? It just smells so good. I don't have that experience with green tea. I think I started drinking green tea because I thought it was good for me. The research is mixed. Um, but now I drink it because it's sort of a habit. And uh, I think there are a lot of ways to brew really bad green tea. And so that's what I was going to talk about today. I think the mistake that I made uh, starting out, first, you got to pick a variety of tea. And there's a bunch of different types of green tea. I have not been a huge fan of the senchas and the machas. You'll see those words on some containers. Those have, for me, those have more of a grassy flavor. And that's what some people sometimes complain about when they drink green tea. They say it tastes like grass. Um, I think the variety of tea you pick can either increase or decrease that. I drink a lot of gunpowder green tea, which is like tea leaves that are rolled up into little balls and dried that way. And so I guess it looks like gunpowder. But I think the secret to, to green tea is you can't pour boiling water onto green tea and think it's going to taste good because that 100 degrees Celsius water that you would normally do for black tea is extracting all the tannins and all the the parts of the tea leaf that taste really bad, the really bitter flavors. And so I've got an extraordinarily fancy electric tea kettle and I can boil water in it, but I can also set it to 85 degrees Celsius. And so that's what I do when I'm going to brew my green tea. And I think you don't want to let it sit for a super long time either because it'll extract um, quite a bit of that uh, bitterness, the tannic flavors. So five minutes, six minutes, whatever. But here's here's what I like about green tea. So by itself, like you said, pretty boring. But you can mix a bunch of stuff into it that makes it taste interesting and good. So in the summertime, I will mix in, if I have fresh herbs, I'll put in mint or basil and mint, which is sounds odd but it actually tastes delicious you can put in ginger hibiscus basil um, tea yeah it's really good i'll make you some next time i am allowed to see you you can put in dried things you can put in cinnamon or chamomile or orange peel i have um different herbal teas that i keep in the cabinet and i'll just i'll put in some green tea and then some of these other things so it doesn't taste like green tea and maybe that's why i'm not a good proponent for what good green tea tastes like because i am always mixing in different flavors but anyway i like it um i suggest if you start drinking green tea Put in a little honey, and then you just scale it back until you don't notice it anymore. Well, I am intrigued, Dan. I will try try to gussy up my green tea with some of these herbs. I am intrigued by that. That sounds interesting. I will say while you were while you were talking, I did a quick PubMed search of of green tea, and I retrieved around thirty five thousand results. A lot of research out there well, on green tea. Well studied, yes. I believe that if if a food or beverage has existed in a society for, you know, more than a thousand years, it's probably pretty pretty good to try that one. All right, Dan. Well, enjoy your green tea. And if my calendar serves me right, we possibly will be back to sharing a beer next episode. I got a lot of making up to do, Josh. <laughs> I'll see you in March. Pace yourself. Dan, wanted to take a minute to thank our friends from Promega for their continued support of the show. If you need help choosing the best assay to get the answers you're looking for, or you want help ensuring a perfect PCR every time, or if you just want to browse specially curated content to help with your graduate training, check out the Promega Student Resource Center at promega.com slash HelloPhD. The podcast is also sponsored by BioBox Analytics. BioBox is a data analytics platform designed for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. With BioBox, you can design and run bioinformatic pipelines on demand. 
generate publication-ready plots, and discover insights using popular public databases. Spots are limited, so sign up for the waitlist to be the first to access a free account at biobox.io. All right, Dan, let's get on with the show. All right, Josh, several episodes ago, we covered a PhD's guide to a PhD. It was called 10 Tips from Hindsight. Do you remember this episode, episode 145, where we talked about an article from Evelyn DePlazas who got her PhD in uh, Australia, and she went through a list of what she wished she had known uh, as she was getting her PhD. Yeah, I thought there was some real, really valuable advice there for someone who just recently went through and finished the process. Yeah, and we just scratched the surface on some of the um, items that she mentioned. We kind of went through her, her top 10 list, but she had great links inside her article. And so over the past couple of weeks, I've been digging through these, trying to glean just some of the resources that she shared. And one of the themes that came up in her links were transferable skills. And I know these are this idea of transferable skills is something that anybody who has worked in a lab and wants to get a job maybe in industry or somewhere outside of a lab, they talk about this idea of transferable skills, but I don't feel like a lot of people, A, know what they are, or B, know what their own transferable skills are. So I thought we could talk about that today. Yeah, and one thing we see all the time is graduate students don't often have a broad appreciation for all of the skills that they are gaining uh, during their time in graduate school. And, you know, I think a lot of times when we talk about transferable skills, we're thinking about a lot of these careers that are fairly far field from the academic setting that you might be used to in graduate school. You might think, oh, well, what are the skills I need for industry? Or what are the skills I need for policy or government? But, you know, Dan, there's a lot out there, too, that if you talk to a faculty member at your own academic institution, maybe even your own PI, I bet they would tell you that a lot of the skills that they use day in and day out to run their lab and to be a PI in academia even are really different or they they didn't feel very trained to do those specific things during their time in graduate school. Yeah, such a good point. I feel like students know what their skills are, but but the, the thing that makes it transferable is really the context. So I might be great at running PCRs, right? I've, I've done that every day for the last three years, and I am a master at it. That skill of, of doing a PCR might be transferable if you wanted to go work in another biology lab. Um, might be if you want to go work in a clinical diagnostic or a forensic laboratory. You may even do a little bit of that as a PI, though I bet a lot less. But you can't take that skill and transfer it to being a bank teller, right? That's the the context of the job is what makes something transferable. Uh, what's interesting about those PCR skills is it might be transferable that I'm really good at precise measurement. That's a, that's a skill that is useful in a lot of careers. Um, the ability to do the math, uh, calculating the concentrations and understanding what the different ratios are, uh, formulating something, managing my time so that the gel is ready when the PCR is done, the ability to design the experiment in the first time, place, the ability to take the complex data that might come out of that PCR and interpret the results, to troubleshoot yeah. when your PCR ultimately goes wrong. Like all of those things are also transferable skills, but I feel like as a student, I am narrowly focused on the technical step-by-step process that I learned and not so much on the, the broader impact of those uh, technical abilities. 
You know, I think it can provide a lot of motivation and a little bit of a needed ego boost if you can think about the work that you're doing day in and day out, day out and the skills that you're gaining in those broader contexts that you're mentioning. I think it can probably give a lot more richness to the work you're doing every day. I mean, we talk on the show all the time about how the work you're doing in graduate school is in the context of your career, it's about that stepping stone, right? It's about that training to go to the next step or some additional step. And sometimes I think there can, it can feel like a disconnect at some point in your PhD training where Dan, if you're doing those PCRs every day and maybe you've decided, you know what, I don't think I want to be a lab researcher anymore. Then you can, if you're not careful, you can get really demotivated because day in and day out you're in there pipetting and doing PCRs and doing whatever types of experiments. And you can think, why am I doing this? Like, what is really the benefit to me in doing that? And what you're saying is that we need a more holistic understanding of what we are learning, what we are demonstrating about ourselves, that our strengths and weaknesses are, that actually could be really useful information as we think about our next step in our career. That's exactly right. I think taking that one step of abstraction will help you see how (laughs) this very physical aspect of your job is actually you're exercising a lot of different muscles to do a PCR or to manage a mouse colony or whatever it is you happen to be doing. And if you can step up one level, I think you'll see things that are relatable to a bunch of different careers. And so when you go out on a job interview or you are responding to an application uh, request, the job interviews, at least the ones I've participated in recently, are all interested in trying to assess your future performance based on your past behavior. So uh, there are a few places that'll make you take like some kind of personality test, but most often an interviewer will say, okay, well, tell me about a time when you had a conflict and had to resolve it. Tell me about a time when you were a leader. Tell me about a time when had to manage like a tight schedule. And they want examples of things you actually did that demonstrate you have these transferable skills. And so what we're going to do today is go through a handful, um, certainly not a complete list, we'll link to more in the show notes, but we'll go through a couple of the skills that you probably have developed in graduate training, talk about why they're important, and then maybe give some examples of stories that you may be able to tell about those experiences you've had and ways that you can improve right now. Maybe you haven't had a ton of experience. Um, There are things you could do today in your graduate training to get better. That sounds fantastic. So what are some of these skills? Well, I, I picked a handful, and I'm sure, Josh, you'll have a handful. But the one that leapt out to me um, was the concept of information management. I think, you know, there's no question that the amount of data in the world is growing. And, you know, in an academic lab, that's so important. We have to consume all of this information and synthesize it to be able to plan the next experiment. But Companies have the same problem. They have, they are swimming in the same ocean of data, and they have to make decisions. So if they can synthesize that information, get the pieces out of it they need, and you know turn that ship, then they are going to be more successful than their competitors. And so, I think scientists who, you know, we read articles, we process raw data, we look at figures, posters, presentations, conversations, we take all of that to ask the next right question. I think that's a skill that companies are looking for. You know, Dan, I knew you in graduate school, and I know there were a lot a lot of things about graduate training and doing research in your lab that 
you really didn't feel like were a good fit for you or you felt a little bit are you trying to <laughs> understate things <laughs> oh but what i think what i want to know knowing that that that's true looking back with this information management i know you work a lot with data now in your your current role which is very different than what you were doing in graduate school uh, do you can you see examples of how you fostered uh, skills of information management during grad school yeah um so so i can do an example story and and when you get asked a question like this in an interview, thank you for the setup, Josh. This is excellent. A, story, a good story has three parts, right? It has, what was the challenge that you faced? What did you do to overcome it? And then what was the outcome? So if I'm, if I'm thinking about my information management story from graduate school, you know, I, I, I managed a mouse colony. You may not have known, Josh, that I picked it up because a technician in the lab that actually set everything up was leaving to go to graduate school. And so we were trying to breed these knockout mice, but the only records we had of the different crosses that we were making were in this, this technician's lab notebook. And it was tough to read those. It was tough to share those. So when I took over control of the colony, I made a database uh, just on one of the lab computers, but we were able to track all of the crosses and trace the lineage of, of each individual mouse back to, I forget how many, four or five generations. We were able to look at that data and figure out, oh, the reason, you know, basically through all these generations, we have never gotten a homozygous knockout mouse. And we were able to discover that, uh, in fact, it was an embryonic lethal uh, deletion. And so we had to do something else to try and figure out what the phenotype was for our mouse. But so, so that would be my story. I had this problem. We had a mouse colony. I did this thing to make it better. And the outcome was that we discovered a, a trait that we didn't know about before. Um, that's the kind of thing that I think having those stories in your pocket before you get into the interview is going to be super useful so that you're not trying to think on the fly and, and uh, come up with random stories. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that and an important thing for our listeners to take note of is, again, remembering, you know, knowing you during that time, this information management, this database creation that you did uh, that actually was really useful to you and to your lab if I recall correctly, you actually enjoyed that process of organizing the data and putting it together in a usable way, not just for you, but but usable for your research group too. But it was sort of wrapped up in the context of things you didn't like <laughs> very much, which actually tending to the mouse colony uh, and the types of experiments that, that went along with that. I, I'm curious, you know, looking back on it now, I think you can you can make some of these connections, but did you recognize in the moment that, hey, you know what? Like making the database was not even the primary focus of what you were doing and was probably not even primarily appreciated in the way <laughs> of other aspects of what you're doing. Nobody, a- nobody asked for it, you're right. Yeah, but did you, did you understand or appreciate in that moment or at that time, hey, this is actually something I enjoy doing or you know, even in the midst of all these things I don't enjoy doing, here's something I'm going to file away that might be useful later. Yeah, I, you're, you're so right. And it's something that I made time for. So it was clearly something I wanted to do and something that I valued. Um, it was probably some a way for me to bring sanity to a you know an aspect of my job that felt chaotic and difficult. And so, yeah, I think you're totally right. It, it was an expression of, of my, shall we say, motivated abilities to reference back to another recent episode. But yeah, so this idea of information management, though, um, 
Can you think of ways that current students can get better at this, Josh? Are there are there practices or tools that they could be using to later demonstrate that they've got this skill? I think so, for sure. And you mentioned it a minute ago how the more that time goes by, everything, there's more data. There's so much data available. And even lots of experiments and types of experiments that scientists are doing now just generate so much more data at one time uh, than they ever have before. And and I think in, in general, one way that graduate students can probably grow in this area, but also benefit <laughs> themselves in the short term is thinking more critically about how do I organize my data? Are there periods where I'm wasting time looking for data or coming through the data? Are there ways I can uh, refine this process of, of going through my data or sharing my data? Or like you did, Dan, are there processes in the lab where, that are very inefficient because data are not very well organized? And that could be an opportunity really to kill two birds with one stone is you, uh, sorry for the birds, but you know you not only build these skills, but it might also help your progress and help your work go a little more smoothly. I think that's true. And I think for all these transferable skills, getting stronger in them is going to help you graduate faster. I think you were hinting, Josh, at if you have 5,000 spreadsheets that got spit out of your QPCR, uh, coming up with a system to manage those. Um, I think any kind of automation you do or coding, or if you make an Excel sheet that has the formulas pre-packed, uh, those are things. But but also, information management means reading papers and maybe writing a review article or leading a journal club. I think those are cases where you are taking complex information and transferring it to other people in a pared-down, useful way. And so those are some examples of, of ways I think you can get better. Absolutely. Uh, you know, another transferable skill that I think we hear about quite a bit uh, is time management. And I think time management sometimes is sort of like this boogeyman where, you know, I always wondered, I would love to do a poll of of maybe grad students, maybe all of us, just, just to say, how good of a time manager do you think you are? What if I asked you that, Dan? What would you say? Terrible. Yeah, I feel terrible. Yeah, I feel terrible too. And yeah, I think I've always felt that way, but objectively, I can look at myself now and I am a much better time manager today than I was during the time I was in graduate school. I mean, I think there have been external factors that have forced that. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say kids made me much better at managing <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, however, I mean, time management is transferable in every direction that you might want to go. And I think this is something that we, an area where we all struggle, we all can continue to grow. But I can say for sure, and you probably can too, Dan, the farther you progress in your career, the more important that time management becomes. And, you know, I can remember in graduate school thinking I had so much on my plate. And in retrospect, I realized that actually I had a lot of freedom, <laughs> uh, more than I thought I did, and I actually had way less on my plate, at least as far as vastly different competing forces for my time. And, you know, you sort of become a better time manager out of um, necessity. But that's going to be true as you transition into a job, whether that's in industry or academia or business or whatever, you know, the pace is going to continue to increase. I mean, you can imagine being a PI of a lab versus a grad student in the lab, right? Your PI has to keep up with not only your project, but all the other projects that are going on and collaborations and papers and the literature. And it can feel overwhelming. So 
I think to your point, Dan, as you think about your next steps, think about ways today that you can become a better time manager or maybe ways that you have grown as a time manager and and think about what those stories that you might tell of ways you have become better at managing your time. Because I can guarantee um, this is the type of transferable skill and type of story that you are definitely going to be able to expound upon in a job interview. Yeah, wouldn't it be great to show up uh, to to the job interview and be able to say, and this is my suggestion for you know one way you could put this in action, to say, in the academic world, we need to publish papers. So what I chose to do was, and this is not true for me, Josh, but this is what I want <laughs> students to do. Uh, what I chose to do was to think through what some of the figures would be for that paper that we needed to write. And then I was able to backtrack my way to putting together a schedule for myself of how I was going to get these things done. And when I put that schedule together, I actually noticed that we needed some resources from our collaborator. So I was able to get that in motion ahead of time rather than waiting to the last minute. There's no reason that today you can't start that process and then have that story to tell when you go on that job interview. So I think you're always managing time. It might be an experiment with time points overnight today, but it might be this longer strategic plan. And having a couple of those stories where you can show you were successful is just going to give you so much more confidence when you step into that interview. Yeah. And then we've done some episodes in the past on time management and not necessarily from this context, but, but strategies for time management. And I think this is one of those things where everyone's a little bit different in what works for you and ways that you can improve uh, as a time manager. But it's one of those areas where growing in this way is not only going to be helpful as you think about transitioning to careers or jobs, but it's going to be helpful just in your own productivity where you are now. So I think it is well worth the, if I may, the time you put in uh, to work on becoming a better time manager. Nice. Um, the next transferable skill I think is really related, and that is project management. Basically, if you work in a research lab, you have managed projects, right? Your research is a complex, interdependent series of events that have to happen with a certain amount of time and on a certain budget. Now, as a graduate student, you may not know what the budget is. Your PI almost certainly does. But you are managing projects. Now, in industry, you might be given much less time and a much smaller budget it's, or maybe more budget. Um, there's going to be less opportunity for you to kind of wander off your project and explore the interesting cul-de-sacs and, and aspects of your job. But um, you'll also be doing project management there. The one thing I will say is that project management has a can have a very specific meaning in the business and academic world. Um, there are people who are quote-unquote project managers they tend to get training. Um, they have PowerPoints <laughs> and meeting minutes and things like that that happen for every single thing they do. But you can get that training. Um, if you have a business school at your university, or even, I don't know, Josh, do you, do you guys offer any kind of project management training within the biomedical sciences? Um, I know we have an active group of, of students who are interested in business and entrepreneurship, and there's been a lot of sort of cross-communication with our business school, um, as you mentioned. So um, I think some of those opportunities might exist in that way, like you were discussing. Yeah, regardless, there are online courses. Um, just type in project management training, uh, and there are certifications and things you can get. 
But having some of those things on your CV, I think will be really helpful. But again, this is not something that you're going to have to go crazy out of your way to do. You're already managing projects. Now, you may be able to pick up some, pick up some skills from these courses that help you manage your projects, but you're already doing this. Yeah, you know, I think a real growth area with project management is at some point, and I don't know if you experienced this, Dan, but I know this has been a big growth area for me, transitioning from being a grad student, then a postdoc, and then into my career, is I think if you're not careful as a graduate student especially, while yes, you are managing um, a project, maybe even more, maybe more focused in scope, but still, you can have this feeling that everybody's saying, all right, you need to gain independence, that that's really important thing you're trying to accomplish. And that can be misinterpreted as you have to do everything yourself. And so I think what can happen if you're not careful is when you think about project management, you're thinking, how can I manage myself well enough so that I can get all the work done for this project? And that becomes a very slippery slope as you progress because there's going to come a time where, um, one, that's not feasible, right? The project will become too big um, or the progress will become too inefficient where you're trying to do everything yourself or you just physically can't do it all yourself um, or you get in a position where the goal is for you to work as a team, uh, whether you're managing the team or you're working um on equal footing with other team members. And this is something, Dan, we've heard from other folks we've talked to on the show who are in industry that sometimes this is a concern that those doing hiring in industry have about academic PhDs is that sometimes they come in with too much of a a do-it-myself mindset uh, because they've not been trained to... Sort of anti-collaborative? Somewhat, yeah. And, And the way I think about it is this. This is how I framed it for myself that, okay, let me think about something else that I manage that has nothing to do with my job. Let me think about my household, my house. And I think, okay, well, is my house my responsibility to take care of? Well, yes, it is. So what if my air conditioner goes out? Okay, well, that's my problem. I'm the one that has to take care of it. But what that doesn't mean is that even though it's my responsibility to manage my house and fix my air conditioner, if I don't have the technical skills and ability to fix it myself and it maybe isn't the best use of my time to completely become an expert on HVAC repair and fix it myself. You don't have a tank of R406 <laughs> in the garage that you just... You know, actually my neighbor does. <laughs> He's helped me out before. Uh, but sometimes what that means in managing my house means I have to know when I need to seek out someone else who's an expert to help. And that's me managing. That's me taking care of this, right? That's me being an independent person. And I think sometimes that is true in the lab or in our career too. Part of managing your project is knowing when you need to seek outside expertise uh, or bring in other people to help you move the project along. Well, and I would even, you know, I, I think you're totally right. And I would even wrap that it is certainly project management to figure out the next steps and to delegate where that needs to happen. That's also part of the next uh, transferable skill, which is leadership. And to your point, I think a lot of students believe that they don't have leadership or management experience because they are the lowest graduate student on the lab totem pole. But the reality is, like you said, if you are working with collaborators, if you have taken over initiative on a project if you have mentored uh, an undergraduate student or you've 
introduced a rotation student or a, a new student in the lab to some of the techniques and protocols, you are effectively exercising leadership. You are managing and mentoring people. Um, and so it's subtle because you don't have a team of 50 working for you, but that doesn't mean that you won't have some stories about that time you had to work with the collaborator and get everybody organized about who was going to do which experiment. You know, this one, to get more experience, you can take on a, you can choose to take on a mentorship role. I know uh, an undergraduate wanders in, everybody may run for the <laughs> cubicle to hide, but, uh, if you want to improve this skill and to have some stories to be able to tell when you apply to that job, maybe step up and, and offer to help. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. And and maybe similar to you with the the data management, for me, from this point of view, I have, I guess, a story. I remember being a postdoc and you know that was a period of time where I was not enjoying the science very much. I was not enjoying my day-to-day um, in the lab. I was having a bit of a career crisis. Um, however, one of the things that I was doing was I was I was mentoring um, undergrad in the lab and also a couple of rotation students, a couple of first year graduate students in the lab. And thankfully, at that time, I was trying to pay a little bit of attention to what were the bright spots of my day, the things I was enjoying to do, and and I realized that I really did enjoy helping them advance their projects and talking to them about their careers and helping them move forward in what they were trying to do. And that was really important, I think, one, not just in me understanding what it is I wanted to do, but when I eventually applied for the job that I have now, that was something that I could point to as evidence of why I was, one, interested in that type of work, uh, but also why I might have some skills to do it. Because even in my limited opportunities working in the lab to do a job that was very different than working in the lab, um, you know, I could draw on those experiences of working with students and mentoring and providing um, guidance. Um, that was a really important experience to have had that made me more competitive for the job that I ended up getting. It's it's great experience. And in the last, um, I think the last way I can think of to improve in this is to join some of the professional groups or some of the campus student groups Usually, it's made up of people who are looking for somebody to take the reins and and to step up and do a leadership role. I remember as a graduate student, I was part of this very loose group of people who are interested in maybe transferring to industry. And so we organized a talk, you know, once a quarter or something like that. So I took on the role of, of organizing one of those talks, right? So there's an example of me taking a leadership role in a student organization, had I stayed in the lab and not left the lab, I wouldn't have had that experience. And so it gives me one more thing to talk about, which brings up the next transferable skill and one that is near and dear to our hearts, Josh, communication. Uh, the ability to communicate verbally and in writing, to to craft arguments in your research papers, to support your conclusions, to be able to write. Uh, technical writing is difficult and it's something that takes practice. Um, and you're, it's something that you're practicing in lab right now to take this to synthesize these complex topics and convey them both precisely and clearly, uh, which is tough to do. And it's a skill that you're developing. I think this is such an important thing that transfers to a lot of different jobs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think the good news is that this is an area where you are likely getting opportunities to practice during your a lot of times during your training 
whether you're giving a talk in lab meeting or at your departmental seminar or a student seminar or in a class or a journal club or whatever, you know, I think that can make some, I, I can remember sometimes those tasks that were on your plate where you knew it was your turn to present at lab meeting or it was your turn to, we had to speak at the, at the student departmental seminar once a semester. And I remember <laughs> sometimes it just felt like a burden, like, Oh my gosh, I've got to give my talk. Oh, when I got to get that ready. But you know, if you can, shift you can reframe it such that oh wow this is a great opportunity for me to really engage working on my communication skills um, then maybe you can have a better frame of mind for um, how doing this task will actually be beneficial to you in the long run and one thing i would say here uh, one piece of advice i would give here is try to seek out someone who is willing to take the time to give you really good constructive feedback on your communication, whether that's your writing or you're doing great, Josh speaking. Doing great. <laughs> that's not what you're looking for. You know, I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but I remember recently uh, within the last few years writing a grant and I, I tend to think of myself as a pretty good writer, Dan in general, but I sent the draft of this grant to my boss and you know, I guess I really was thinking like, Oh, this draft's in really good shape. I'm really just looking for you to, check off on it and say, yeah, it looks great. Uh, and what I got back was, I mean, blood all over the page, you know, so much red, <laughs> so much red text. And my initial thought was, well, how dare you? Like, this was great. Like, this was a fantastic draft. How could you have torn this apart like this? And I was like mad, you know. It was pistols at dawn. <laughs> but, you know, I took a moment and sort of looked at some of the feedback and the editing. And what, what occurred to me is how much time that this person had devoted to going through what I had written, right? And this was a very busy person. And I started to appreciate like, wow, this was really a gift. The fact that this person took the time to read through this 20-page grant and give me this level of feedback. And, and you know what? The grant uh, that was funded, um, by the time it was submitted, it was so much better than it would have been if I would have just submitted it on my own. And so what that did for me is now I think differently about getting back feedback that just says, yeah, it looks good. You know, I think on one hand, as a student, I remember you think that's what you want to get, right? You want to get back that feedback about your talk, like, yeah, you did a great job. But if you can find somebody who you look up to as a good writer or a good communicator who's willing to listen to you examine your work and give you really honest, open feedback. Um, I think that is worth a lot uh, in improving your communication. It's true. And I used to hate it. Uh, <laughs> we used to have to practice our talks in front of the PI before, you know, giving it to the department or whatever. And, oh, I, I you know, I always got really great feedback and useful feedback. And, and, you know, you said this, but that's actually not precisely, you know, stated the right way. You need to say it like this. So helpful, like you said, hard to go through. But but I think looking at it from this lens of this is going to make me better at this skill. I think it's one thing we haven't mentioned, and it's interesting to think about. A lot of the transferable skill lists that I looked at in, in putting this together, they have things that I don't know if they're exactly transferable skills. They're more like um, personality traits or features of, of who you are. Some of them talked about emotional intelligence and the ability to kind of be friendly and talk to clients or salespeople or whatever. I think 
one way that you get to experience this or that you get to watch it is in the question and answer session after a talk. Have you ever seen the person who gets really combative and is like offended that they got asked a question mm-hmm. by somebody and they, they get really aggressive about it? I promise you, you don't want to do that in the biz- you know, when you're applying for, for your job or in the business world. Um, that, that cockiness, that um, aggressive sort of, I don't know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an animosity, it's a standoffishness, is not going to help you. And so if you feel yourself, uh, maybe as you're giving your talk and getting questions, feeling threatened and, and turning into that person, do something to help turn it back down because that is a great way to, you know, in your interview, be told, thank you, bye-bye, and, and never get called back. I mean, it sounds like you're referring a little bit to maybe this is another muscle to work on or to work out is learning to be receptive to feedback, learning to take feedback and, and look at it as a gift and not as something to be defensive about. Um, you know, it is. And, and, and a little bit checking your ego and, you know, as a PhD, you, you can, you have the right to feel proud, but you don't have the right to turn that pride into some sort of superiority complex over people that don't have PhDs. Right. So I'm all I'm saying is to to check your humility a little bit and to make sure that you're a person that somebody wants to work with and uh, you know these interactions are ways that you may be able to tell in yourself I'm starting to feel really angry at this person who's asking me this question <laughs> and I need to I need to work on that and work through that. Yeah, I'm working through that with my children right now. <laughs> Why are they asking me these questions? Go to bed. Go to bed. Uh, you know, they want, I want to give one little addendum to my advice about seeking someone to give you feedback on your communication. I think when you're, when you are identifying that person, um, I think trust is important. You know, I think it's important to find someone that you trust. They have your best interests in mind and that they, uh, you trust that they want to help you succeed. Not a chaos agent. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes, you know, what you're not looking for. You should for, say that with 50% <laughs> more F words. <laughs> you, you, you know, you're not looking for somebody to tear you down, right? But somebody who will be, give you honest, constructive feedback, uh, but somebody that you trust um, has your best interest at heart. That really stunk. <laughs> That's not what you Do want. better. The, the last one I wanted to touch on, Josh, and this one's a little bit more obscure, and and that's why I wanted to talk about it, because I think it actually is an experience and a skill that a lot of graduate students have that is useful in industry, um, and that is legal and regulatory compliance. Um, totally kind of out of left field here, I know, but if you have worked in a lab, you have dealt with protocols, safety protocols, maybe from uh, environmental health and safety you have IRBs, institutional review boards. So you have laid out a series of steps that you have agreed to follow and that you have to follow and document. Um, you have HIPAA, where the confidentiality of the data that you're collecting needs to be protected. So in industry, this is all true, uh, except it's the FDA and and people's lives tend to be on the line at the end of whatever process you're following. So there is strict adherence to these guidelines and to the laws strict intellectual property protection and confidentiality. Uh, I bring this up because it's probably worth thinking through some of the protocols that you have followed in your laboratory experience just as a way to make the hiring manager comfortable that this is not going to be your first time uh, sticking to a set of, of strict rules. And so some ways you can improve on this, go to that training follow it, Volunteer to be your lab safety manager. Work with the environmental health and safety people to 
go through the checklist that has to happen for every lab to ensure that everybody's safe. Uh, where I went to school, we had a technology transfer office that dealt with the intellectual property transferring out of labs and into industry. And we had some uh, mutual friends, Josh, who volunteered there and worked in that office to get a sense of what that was like. So if this is something that you're interested in or you think you're going to go into a, a career where compliance matters, you can actually get that experience now in grad school. Yeah, if you, you, know, if you work in a lab that, that, works on, that works with animals, maybe you could be the one to you know, work with your animal use protocols and the organization on your campus that, that monitors and enforces those rules, right? Any, any new uh, procedure that your lab does or wants to do, there are a lot of protocols that have to be written in a certain way and approved and updated um, and records kept. And if, if your lab is anything like mine was, uh, if you were willing to volunteer to be that person to do those things, uh, I'm sure that job would be available for you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, <laughs> you'd be the one that, to, to take that bullet, I guess. So the last thing, I mean, there are, there are lots more transferable skills. We're going to post some links to more of these resources. The last thing I wanted to do just to make this more concrete was to read a couple of lines from job descriptions I found today on Indeed.com. So I looked for, you know, I searched for PhD and looked through some of the job descriptions. And uh, the, the first one I'll read is a, is a from a scientist position. And I'm going to read one in a second for a science writing position, but listen to, listen to what a research scientist one needs to do with this particular company. Number one, designs and or executes scientific testing strategies and studies, leads assay development, assay validation, or study conduct, is involved in preparation materials, reviews and interprets study data, communicates results to clients and writes final reports, ensures compliance with protocols and all applicable SOPs. That's standard operating <laughs> procedures for all of you Joshes out there. USOP. Troubleshoots and resolves assay or technical issues in the laboratory when scientific expertise is needed. May introduce new technologies or introduce improvements in existing technologies. You're hearing the themes that we just talked about. Um, um, For that last one, introduce new technologies. If you were applying to this job, you may say, oh, I was the one in our lab who who, you know, found out about this new software that we're now using for our analysis or, or we found this new restriction enzyme because I looked it up and brought this new technique to the lab. So you'll go through the job description you're interested in, and you'll think of your stories based on what they've asked you for. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'll just read a couple lines from one for a PhD research scientist writer. Write short, easy-to-understand articles on health topics based on popular Google searches. Uh, Enter content into the Magneto Content Management System, populate our website. Write product descriptions involving research of a brand's manufacturing practices, marketing claims, and mission. Right. So if this were, if I were applying to this, I would basically be showing, look, when I was in grad school, I kept our, our lab's webpage up to date with everybody's contact information and the papers that we published. So I've used a content management system or I wrote a blog, whatever, you know, we, we talk about science writing quite a bit on the show. There are ways for you to tie each one of these um, essential functions back to stories from your history and that's going to help the hiring person make that connection in a very explicit way. You know, I think to, to wrap this up, it highlights just once again the importance of um, self-assessment and self-reflection as you're going through your training because I imagine, Dan, as some people out there listening were hearing you read those job descriptions, there's probably a subset of people as you read the first one who thought, wow, that sounds like a great job. Can you put the link to... <laughs> 
put the link to that job posting. Um, and then there were other people, I would have been one of them, who thought, oh, that job sounds awful. <laughs> like, yep, you get the twit, the knot in your stomach. I know exactly what uh, you and mean. Then the second, you know, and then the second posting, there's probably a different subset of people that thought, oh, that sounds really cool. And so it's interesting to me, as we're all going through our experience in the lab, there's this lab that's a, a hopefully functioning group of different types of people. And there's lots of different types of things that are going on there. And at any given moment, you know, there's that one person in the lab who's just really loving setting up those, those Western blots. And then there's this other person who's really loving organizing the figures and putting those together into a paper. And then there's somebody else, Dan, like you, who's really enjoying creating this database to help things stay organized, you know, within the lab. And then somebody else who's really excited about this talk they have to give, you know, next week. And those are all aspects of, they're all people working on the same team uh, towards a similar team goal, but there's different aspects that really connect with who they are. And these are the things you need to pay attention to because recognizing what pieces of that puzzle really excite and interest you are going to be really informative to help you seek out those jobs or making those things you enjoy doing during graduate school more of your full-time job uh, once you're done. I love it. Well, if anybody listening has examples of transferable skills that you think you've picked up in your PhD training, please email them to us. And uh, we'd like to read them on the next mailbag episode. Yep. And you can send those to us along with any other questions or topic ideas to podcast at hellophd.com. Or you can tweet at us uh, at HelloPhD. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love getting your feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, HelloPhD.com. Click the Become a Patron button or visit Patreon.com slash HelloPhD. And we would appreciate the money for green tea or for beer uh, next month for Dan. And thank you so much to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Can hardly wait, Josh. It'll be amazing. <laughs> Who knows what the next episode will have in store? Uh, 150, Dan. Next episode, 150. Are we doing anything special? 150. Okay, well, we'll do something exciting. <laughs> we always do. Every every episode is That's special, right. Josh. That's right. All right, Dan. Well, always a pleasure, and we will see you next time. See you then. Bye. Bye.